Welcome to the Cycling Legends podcast interview show. I'm Chris Sidwells and today I'm talking to a real pioneer. 40 years ago in the 1980s, what would be the men's world tour today was just that, a totally male domain. No female mechanics, no female DSs, no soigneurs, doctors, no female anything really. Very few female journalists even. Then there was Shelley Versus. 25 years old, blonde, attractive, but far more importantly, the highly professional soigneur with the American 7-Eleven team. With her character, her kindness, and her sheer ability, European Cycling had no choice but to accept her, and in doing so, she changed it forever. I hope you enjoy listening to Shelley as much as I did, and remember, this podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Vive Lavello the best bike shop in East Yorkshire. Find out more on vivlavello.cc. So without any more delay, we are proud to present Shelley Versus on the Cycling Legends podcast. It's an honour today to welcome to the Cycling Legends podcast, the force of nature, the force for change, that is Shelley Versus. Well, welcome Shelley. Thank you. The weather in uh, Santa Barbara. Oh, well, nothing like you. This would be like a summer day for you guys. Thank you. Yes, we, we've, uh, <laughs> we've got water coming up the walls today. It's terrible. Um, I just want to set the scene. I mean, you 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 were the first female soigneur in the world in what is the men's world tour now. Um, it was the mid nineteen eighties. Soigneurs before this were sort of Svengali kind of creatures. All men. All had seen everything, all rather gruff, with big hands. And then along came a 25-year-old Californian woman, uh, effervescent, attractive. Um, What was the reception like? Well, you probably have read a lot of the stories, which are all pretty true. Yeah. But, um, you know, there was a Belgian soigneur I worked with, Richard Jonquer, came from a big cycling family. Yeah. And the only uh, the, the only thing I knew about European bike racing was pretty much from Richard Jonquer on 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. And it all sounded so fantastic. So when I got to the Giro in 85, mm-hmm. um, I was not warmly welcomed and to the point that um, my director sports chief, Mike Neal, just said straight up in the first in the first hours at the hotel, Shelly, you're not going to be doing any feeds. You're not going to work the feed zone. You know, <laughs> you're going to work the time trial, uh, you know, in Verona. Really, it was that. And this was the, 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 the bad feeling from the other swan years or staff because the- <laughs> I, I think when, Mike, when Mike went to go pick up the credentials, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when they saw that my yeah, when they saw my photo uh, on the credential, Mike handed the credentials to the Italian guys, and um, you know, the riders' credentials, the Swaniers, and everyone. They saw that there was a girl's photo uh, for a Swanier. He he just saw that and thought, uh, you know, he he needed to protect the team and me in a way, and just said. You got to go do the hotel duty, you know, just go with the truck to all the hotels and just no feed zone you know, in this race. And so it started from there just with the credential. 
Yeah, yeah, Francesco Moser turned up at that prologue and just demanded a, 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 a his legs being rubbed. He and he did. had to do it. I had to do it. Because and, of uh, the Francesco Moser. <laughs> and I did know who he was because I saw his picture a lot on photos in the bike shop here in Santa Barbara, you know, at uh, at, at um, Hendrickson's bike shop and in magazines. But um, I didn't quite put it together until the leaders of my team were like, you better rub Francesco Moser's legs. And I'm like, you know, he, I can't rub his legs, you know? And they were like, you're going to rub his legs. And he had a whole entourage of dudes with jumpsuits on greasing his chariot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, did he, did he change in France? I mean, when, when with 7-Eleven doing the Tour of France next year in 1986, I mean, I've interviewed Jim Okovitz with for Cycling Magazine, um, and he said that you every day you were just learning and you were learning together. By that time, had the other Swaniers accepted you a little bit more? A little bit. Um, it was always something. I was so respectful of them. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to learn so much. And... Um, and, you know, Title IX had been around in the United States and everywhere in the world. Um, but I I was so respectful of the history of cycling and that I was not uh, the norm. So I always was trying to bring coffee. My mom just said, bring coffee, be, be a little bit of a hostess. So I was <laughs> always bringing coffee to the mechanics and trying to say thank you in the ways that I could, I'd bring, you know, 7-Eleven hats and extra jerseys that we had made to the Swaniers and mechanics of the other teams as a way to say thank you on the sly. Um, so we had t-shirts and swag that we would give to the hotel people, um, things like that. So these are things that I was trying to do on the side whenever I could. Mm -hmm. So if someone was helping me, um, I asked a question, how do I do this? How do I do that? A big one for me was how to make ice, you know? <laughs> so where do I get the ice? <laughs> I saw an interview, it was, the, it was the year later, an interview you did with Paul Sherwin. And for all that you're young, and this is a completely new world, you, you seem to, and you were exuberant and everything, but you seem to have this air of calm assurance, like you knew this was your destiny, this was where where you should be. Is that true? Is that just an impression I've made up, or is that how you felt? Um, I love, I love to help people, mm -hmm. and I think I I I liked that part of my job. Um. I love to learn about injuries and I love to learn about the root cause of the injury. And I was learning a lot of that from the team doctors when a rider got hurt. And, um, and I think that part of the job learning from those old swan years, mm -hmm. like the ones that took care of Merck's mm -hmm. and the old directors, I would ask them so many questions in the, and the managers and that was that was such a beautiful essence of the sport. And when when I just asked them, not in big groups, but one on one, even in the elevators or carrying the bags, um, when they were alone with me, 
they didn't feel like they had to have a bravado. Mm -hmm. And I think that that part of it, that that respectful part that I had toward them. And I would ask them, you know, what will you eat when you get home with your family? And, and that was like the behind the scenes part of me. And, you know, how's your daughter, uh, how's your daughter's school? And yeah. so no one, no one would hear those conversations. If my back, if I was sitting on a cooler making my 350 bidons for the race and Bruno was behind me on his cooler, um, making bidons for his team. I could ask him about his wife and daughters, um, but that was part that no one knew about and no one ever spoke about. And so maybe that was the calm yeah, behind the storm, you, 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 <laughs> the that, chaos. That, it's not something you can fake. You, you must have been very much a, a people, per well, you are very much a pe people person. You're genuinely interested uh, in, in them. Did you ever, um, I mean, I've heard of some weird swan-year cures for things. Is there, a, a, I mean, and all this stuff wasn't in textbooks, was it? It was handed down, oh, a law no. from one swan-year. You were privileged to have been told these things. Are, are there any things now that um, would seem absurd today that you were told? Although I think everything yeah. was effective. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, an osteopath. Yeah. Are you asking me to tell you a, an absurd thing? That that I would think was absurd, or not I would think was absurd, but that you would think is interestingly absurd. Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, <laughs> okay. So uh, at the start of Liège, Bastogne Liège one year, um, Phil Anderson, uh, who I was going out with, he was a leader of a team. Yeah. And um, and he he came up to me at the beginning of Liège, Bastogne Liège, and I was on La Vie Claire. And he said that he had a, a problem in his wrist here mm -hmm. and it wasn't going away. And this was way before the start of the race, because we had to get to those starts really early for interviews and things like that. So um, apparently he had a problem um, in the tendons of his wrist and he had pulled a suitcase um, and nothing worked. I guess his team did um, laser, ultrasound, all kinds of modalities, and it was weak. And he was a power rider, so he would pull on his bars a lot. And you know the climbs in that race. Mm. So, um, you know, he wanted me to help him. Yes. And really, I'm not supposed to help uh, him in any way, shape, or form. You know, maybe I could give him a massage if his masseur in between races mm. uh, wasn't available. But um, other than that, I can't give him any edge at all. I can't tell him how my riders were going mm -hmm. or anything. So um, I went over to the cost team and I asked their osteopath, hey, yeah. you know, what could I do for Phil's wrist? And in French, she said to me, Shelly, quel le plus près sorti de le problème? Shelly, what's the closest exit to the problem? And I'm like, the closest exit to Liège? No, he said. The problem, his wrist. And basically, he was asking me energetically, what's the closest exit to the pain? And I said, oh, his hand. He said, well, pull the problem out of his hand. So he was telling me to do energy work. Yeah. Energy. Yeah. 
I said, you want me to energetically pull the problem out of his hand? He said, don't think too much. Just go do it. Hurry up. So I told Phil, come over to my team car. There was like a space about a meter between two buildings. And I told him to tuck his bike in there. And I stood there in between the two buildings and I had him put his hand on top of his bars and I did energy work on the top of his wrist. And um, I tried to energetically pull the problem out. Was and that, that you mean just shoving it out, just pushing it Yeah, down. I just, you know, I just did energy work. I just grabbed the energy and oh. I energetically pulled the pain out of his wrist. And that man, Dr. Pierre Ducrot, um, was one of my biggest teachers on the pro tour. And, you know, I did energy work on my riders from that point forward when they had pain. And so <laughs> if you want to call that obscure. <laughs> oh, I mean, I've heard of healing hands. Do you think you've got healing hands? Is that? Uh... <laughs> yeah. So in the middle of the night, if a, if a rider had, uh, you know, digestive problems, you know, Shelly, can you do the on my stomach? I did it. <laughs> I did it with Nikki Rudiman. I did problem, you know, I worked on Jean-Francois. I, I did that a lot. So you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. Well, we are all energy, aren't we? We, you know, we are all vibrating <laughs> atoms. And yeah, I believe in this kind of thing. Um, and in 7-Eleven, you and you and it's very interesting because we've had Andy Amston on the on the podcast and you you did you kept doing a shuttle didn't you 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 yeah, went one way and, and and you went the other he'd gone to La Vie Claire and was was there um in in the, the Greg Lamond and uh, Bernardino well supposed to have been a battle but uh, he gave us some insight on that which was very interesting um but after Eno's retirement you were asked to go to La Vie Claire by the uh, Paul Cutley. Paul Kirkley, isn't it? Who was a Swiss DS? And I mean, you said a lot of good things about him. I I sort of read about how scientific he was. He was probably a a more modern director sportive, but I was interested um, in that you'd had an offer from Panasonic. Was that did that come from uh, Peter Post? Yeah, that was a really yeah. fascinating. Um, I I I did negotiate between Panasonic and Paul Kochley. And um and Och uh for yeah. a while. Yeah. And then um and then the wives on Panasonic didn't want me to go over there. <laughs> oh, is that the reason? Yeah. And that was uh, I, I did want to go to that team because they were English speaking and I, I didn't speak uh French yet. Right. And so that was uh, a team that that interested me um because their language, a lot those riders did speak. Um, English and the staff spoke English. And so that was a team that I'd be able to communicate on. And Koshley, straight up, Eno was going to leave mm -hmm. and he wanted to change the mentality of that team mm -hmm. and wanted what 7-Eleven had, um, you know, an open-minded team. What what I was doing with 7-Eleven, he wanted on his team. Yeah, And, um, you know, Greg told me that on the phone. And so that uh, I thought, well, you know, there's English speaking writers there. You know, I, I'll have English on that team. There's Greg and Thurlow Rogers and Roy Nickman and um, Steve Bauer. So I thought, oh, OK, <laughs> I'll go to the French team. <laughs> so that's how that happened. 
But I think, well, we'll go on to that. I don't think you got put in the team with the, with the, with the French, with uh, looking after the French riders. But you, it's interesting, you said about 7-Eleven, you were very much together exploring, but uh, 7-Eleven got good results, really, didn't it? It was, do you think it was, it was this happy band of adventurers? I mean, you, you just started the first Tour of France, and I think uh, Djimokovic had to twist the arms of the organisers to get in. Yeah. And in the first, the end of the first day, you've got the yellow jersey. It was such, uh, it was such an amazing experience, Chris. You know, Seven Eleven. Everyone wants to know. You know what? What did you guys do? How did that happen? But we were such a natural group. There yeah. was such a an amazing dynamic there that just happened to be, and um, and everyone. Everyone was kind of set in motion from uh, the original group that that Och had set in place from the onset. I didn't come into that picture till '83, um, and I had met all those riders when they were at the Olympic Training Center. Mm -hmm. And I that's was where you started, there. isn't it? That's where you. Yeah, and then Och had come, and and all the riders that were going to be, uh, you know at the Olympics, they were, you know, before they were selected, they were already on the national team. Mm -hmm. So Och was kind of like Paul Koshley in a way. Yeah. He wanted to have everyone that was on 7-Eleven have their support with them when they were doing national team racing. Yeah. So that meant Roger Young, Ange Beck, Yarek Beck, me. Mm -hmm. So when they were going to be at an Olympic training center training camp or on the road with the U.S. team, they would have the same faces at the same places. And so he was such a brilliant minded organizer. And so I would massage them there. Yarek Beck, Ange Beck, Roger Young. Um, and then we would see them when we were domestically racing so mm -hmm. uh he he was very much like paul in that way with organization and mm -hmm. so everyone carried over but this this group um you know the way the way we all were together um it was joy filled yeah. but very small things uh that happened when when we were together um that carried over in Europe uh, happened to just be the camaraderie of these yeah. riders and the way that they were with each other. And, um, and the small things, I, I, I can only speak for my part. Um, you know, I would try to emulate what we did at home in Europe and to make things comfortable for them yeah. and with food and setup and um and fun so <laughs> is, is it true that you sometimes used to wrap their food in pages from playboy magazine <laughs> you know i did that at the end of uh <laughs> i only did that at the at the last day the first time i did that uh, was the last stage of the tour de france yeah that we did i bought a bunch of playboys and <laughs> um so that i could make them you know have a fun day my and I bought extra Playboys and I gave them to the other <laughs> Swaniers in the feed zone so that they could do it for their riders too. 
<laughs> and uh, I bought a bunch of beer on that day too uh, to hand up in the last stage. You know, that's kind of a piano, piano stage. And I gave beers to all the directors in the tour and the other swan years too. And I put whistles in the feed zone sometimes and chocolate and toys so the guys could have fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it must have been an amazing tour of France because suddenly, but Greg, you know, the winner is French. Uh, is, is, is is American. Greg LeMond won the the eighty six tour. You you are the you are the first team in there. It's the first Grand Tour that's been you know the, the, the won by an American the first time. I mean, what an amazing time to be and to be part of it. I know we couldn't wait for <laughs> we 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 were just like thinking, man, we can have some Mexican food at Cafe Pacifico and it wasn't even <laughs> going to be good Mexican food. But, you know, we had to have something to look forward to. <laughs> we had riders getting sick and the support was, you know, they don't keep a full support crew. So we had to like double down on our duties, carrying bags and and just looking forward to something. You know, we had to have some morale and um so we just kept saying, oh, you know, 12 more days to chips and salsa, you know, just to, <laughs> just to keep things going in that. And Bob Roll tried to, you know, he tried to sabotage himself and we wouldn't let him get off the bike. And and, you know, he just kept pushing through and slogging. And, you know, we had some brave riders and we didn't even have training in France. You know, the guys oh. trained at at a tour of the Redlands. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just went and did the Tour of France and didn't ever, didn't you, a full team finish? No, they didn't know. They didn't all finish. People were getting sick and right. hitting their heads and uh, <laughs> 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 they were all over the place. But but everyone was was just an amazing, it was an amazing component. It didn't even matter. And, you know, people today, if you... If you win one stage, if you if you win one stage of the Tour de France, it is just you it is history. If you mm -hmm. wear the Maillot Jaune for one day of the Tour de France, you are history. And you know, Davis won a stage and Link won a stage, and I mean he won the, the Maillot Jaune too. And when you pull up anywhere in a car and you're a swan, you're a mechanic. People know who you are, yeah. not because you're the mechanic or the swan, you're, but because your rider was a Mayo June. Yeah. And years after um, Link won the Mayo June, people would see me in a supermarket in Belgium and say, oh, ah, ça c'est le soigneur. They, in the French part of Belgium, they'd say, ça c'est le soigneur de Alex Stida. Yeah. <laughs> and I just would fill up with joy. <laughs> and um you know it's you're like um a ripple in a wave of history. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. No, it, it is it is there forever. But going on to Paul Kirschley, um very scientific DS and um he had views about his team that was was you know what do you do? I think you've, I've seen you quoted as saying that cycling was a wave and you would, he would back, have the team back whoever was on top of the wave. Yeah, he didn't, Um, Paul, at that time, Paul didn't believe in, um, you know, individualized um, specialists. 
-hmm. He just thought whoever was the best that day or in that race could have the capacity to win. And it, and it was just an amazing um, thing to be a part of, of that. And, um, and I, I loved that about him. Mm -hmm. And he, he had the riders training in, in these beautiful methodologies um, with heart rate training. Yeah. And in the off season, you know, he didn't want them to be blowing their legs out with, with skiing and, and all these other things. And so he just wanted them to concentrate on their health and wellness. Their eating, mm -hmm. eating was so important. Eating affected your metabolism. And he wanted everyone just to show up healthy. He, he was just a beautiful mind mm -hmm. and, and mind and body um were all part of his his theorem his theorem and it was amazing to see that and you could see how greg lamont fit into paul's um mm. training because greg loved to train that way yeah. he, he he loved to train that way and so um it really worked and you could see how um how that worked with with perfect racing conditions. If someone was up there, Paul would say, support that rider. And, mm. um, and he, he just thought the best was the best on that day. So, so very so, modern, uh, yeah. a modern guy. So at your own personal job, you, you, you said, Oh, I'll go to uh, La Vie Claire. Cause there's some, there's some Americans, there's some English speakers, but you were, you were put with the French with uh, is it four or five French guys to look after. Well, each soigneur, you know, had three riders per race if there yeah. was a nine-man team, you know. So back in 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 my time, I don't know about now. I'm sure it's kind of the same. Uh, a lot of times the riders, uh, the leader, would say who he wanted his soigneur to be. Yeah. And um, that would happen. Yeah. Other times the head soigneur would say, at this race, you're going to massage these three riders. So that's how it was when I was there. Uh, the, the lead swanier, the head swanier would say, Shelly, at this race, you're going to massage these three riders. Um, and then uh, at the big races, you know, a lot of races, a swanier would would simply say, I'd like to be on so-and-so's list. So, um, uh, you know, at a lot of the big races, Jean-Francois Bernard would ask me to be his swanier. And you were his swanier on that Tour of France in 1987. And... I think one of the most, I mean, it's one of the most vivid uh, memories I've got of cycling that his victory in that time trial stage in Mont Blanc 2. Um, because, I mean, he was just head and shoulders above him and he seemed to be suffering harder than anybody. He, he, he sort of went so deep. It was like, and what subsequently happened to it, it was like he spent his entire career on that mountain. You know, it was, it, he, he just got everything out of himself. Tell, tell us the story behind that day. Well, he trained on that. Uh, he trained on the Vontu. Mm -hmm. So we had a couple training camps there, one in particular where he just really analyzed the, the mountain mm -hmm. and he realized he wanted to have a climbing bike change. Yeah. And um, and at a certain place in a certain virage, in a certain turn, he wanted a particular mechanic to switch his bike and then he continue up the mountain. He's been on a time trial bike. On a time trial, yeah. yeah. Um, um, so he just knew exactly what he wanted to do. 
Yeah. And he wanted the bike change uh, on, a, on a certain side and just keep going. And so at the time, people weren't doing that. They weren't doing bike changes, you know, so but the, he knew what he wanted. Mm. And he had a beautiful pedal stroke. Mm. Uh, Jeff had a great pedal stroke, a nice, you know, flexion in his ankles. And that's just what he wanted to do. So he used to talk about it. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I'm not used to talking about what riders talk about on the table, but, you know, he just, he really wanted to go after that stage, you know, and certain riders talk on the table and certain about the technical things and certain ones don't, but, but he did, he wanted to, uh, he, he, he was really after that particular stage yeah. and he put a lot of thought into it because it was something new that he was going to do. And so um, I was happy for him. Uh, I was happy for him on, after that stage. Well, we'll go on and talk a little bit more about him, but you you, you mentioned table talk and um, I've had Swan years tell me that they, they, they have to be part psychologist, part uh, doctor, part priest, you know, take take confession yeah. because um, I, I believe, is it is it right that a Swan year to get the confidence of the riders it has to be somebody that they can talk to and, and really have a a gripe about things, really have a, a moan about things, which which won't go any further. Is that is, what's the psychological side of being a swan year? I, I think that, you know, allowing the rider to be themselves on the table is is the biggest part there. And, um, you know, you have to have some some rules on the table. <clears throat> I didn't like the riders to eat on the table <laughs> because they didn't like crumbs. <laughs> and uh, and um, and you know you have to have some regulation. So I think like a parent, you know, you know, you have to have some regulation. So first and foremost, I think the rider has to respect you mm -hmm. and and you them. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, that having been said, uh, I respected my riders. And when the rider respects you, that's set in place. Mm -hmm. And that's the beginning of trust. Mm -hmm. And one of the other things was, um, I always said to my riders from the beginning, in regard to interviews in the room, mm -hmm. um, it's up to you whether you want to have interviews and filming in the room. Mm -hmm. um, not me. This is mm -hmm. your space. Mm -hmm. And it's up to you whether you want other riders in the room during your massage. You tell me mm -hmm. whether you want riders in here or not. Because sometimes there'd be six riders in the room. If there's two beds, I slept in a room alone. I didn't share with a mechanic. So uh, sometimes there were two beds in my room and swan years usually have snacks and coolers and stuff like that. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'd have a hot pot for tea. So if a rider was comfortable having the door open and, you know, it could be like a dorm room, you know, it'd be like a frat party, <laughs> and, um, you know, and they, some riders liked that and mm -hmm. they liked having all that going on and having riders from other teams come in and, and all this visitation. Mm. So um, if the rider wanted privacy, 
then they could tell me. And that's another level of trust. So um, in some swan years, they would say to the rider, I'm in charge of you. And I learned that, you know, when I first got there, that some swan years wanted to be in charge of the rider. And I, that didn't feel good for me. Mm -hmm. So, because I, I didn't want to be in charge of somebody's welfare. Yeah. I think that was the old regiment. That was the old type of swan year. Yeah. Where I'm in charge of you. So my very first year uh, going over there, I remember, um, you know, I was told that Rude Bacher was the big do all end all. He was one of the biggest swan years. And I remember I had a coffee with him at three days of the Pana. And he, he, um, I said, Rude, you know, tell me about how you massage the riders. And he told me that all the riders get the same massage. And I just listened to him. Yeah. I didn't tell him how I massaged the riders. Right. So again, part of the answer to you, Chris, is that, um, every single rider's legs are different. Your rider's, your legs are going to be different every single day. Yeah. So why should I massage every rider's legs the same every day? Yeah. Well, I was going to say, yeah. How you can feel, I mean, it's when you always talk about this, how you can feel what condition the legs are in, or you've also said about, you feel if the legs are blown. Um, what does that feel like? How, what, what, what are you looking for? How can you tell the condition of a rider by massaging their legs? What well, is it you feel? Well, some riders, their legs are naturally, just naturally really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I like your question. Um, and you never tell a rider that their legs are blown. No, 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 no. <laughs> but, Part of but, caring for them, isn't it? <laughs> and if they ask you that in the pyrenees or something yeah. you, you just say oh they've been worse you know you just but you never tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh you just you just compare their leg right um you compare it to um the day before you compare yeah. what their norm is mm-hmm. if their leg feels more swollen is it holding more fluid is it harder than it normally is is it is it different from their norm yeah. and so um uh, for example uh if a rider is suddenly recruiting their hamstrings and their adductors the muscles on the inside of their yeah. uh, quad because if they're a domestique let's use that as, a, as the example yeah. to answer your question if a domestique is suddenly the, the inside muscles, their adductors, the muscles that pull into their bars is suddenly really, really contracted mm-hmm. and their hamstrings are really contracted, whereas they weren't the day before. That means that that domestique is having to recruit those adductors and hamstrings more because they're working harder mm-hmm. for their leader. Mm-hmm. And so, I need to work harder to relax those muscles for that domestique because they're working 
with two other muscle groups because the muscles on the top, their quads and their hip flexors have gone a little bit to failure. <laughs> so I don't tell the riders that, but is, did you ever do you relay that on to team managers about, you know, be careful with so-and-so? You know, don't, no, don't do too no, much you just, no, you just know what you're doing. <laughs> you can actually bend that, can you? Say, say that again. You can actually mend it. You feel this tightness, and you can you can help that recuperate. Yeah, you just um, you just have to concentrate and um, and and realize what's going on here. What's the next stage? And let's work on on putting the muscles that are working harder in slack and um, getting this rider more uh, prepared for tomorrow. And you know that's that usually happens you know at the peak of uh, a climbing stage or something yeah. so you, you just do a comparison yeah and how long does a, a massage take um you what know usually there's like usually we have like 45 minutes mm -hmm. and they're, they're usually getting their their back and you know parts of their back and their legs their legs are like the race car you know <laughs> oh yeah that's that's why they, they, they actually and, and, and you're looking at other other muscles as well back and um yeah it, when neck. there's more climbing then there's more back yeah. but you know now you have to remember is so much more different than when i worked mm. when i worked we had our team doctors there not even for the whole tour yes. sometimes the team doctors were there um for part of the tour um, and they would come more during uh, as the tour, pro the grand tours progress. Now teams have like six team doctors. They have acupuncturists, they have performance coaches, they have mattresses. <laughs> they travel with their team mattresses. The riders have so much more available to them to help them. They, they have acupuncture before they go to bed to help them help their body drop into a deeper REM sleep. So there's not just the soigneur helping them. They have like sequential circulating pumps that go on their legs yeah. uh, that their um, venous return. So um, back then there was uh, pretty much massage and um, getting their legs up. So, you know, the riders didn't know that they had more available to them <laughs> like they do now, you know? <laughs> No, no, no. What what was the day like in those days? What was the day on the Tour of France like? Because you you had to get food ready, and I mean now that's done by a a, sh a chef on the team and nutritionists and everything. You had to get race food I, ready, and I know it was. You know, we were like little machines. Uh, <laughs> I I would sleep on my massage table accidentally sometimes at night. I'd be like, oh my god, I have to take this table down. So I'd put my vest on and um. I'd still have my beanie on from like, you know, my team beanie from like running uh, some of my kits down. You know, I I do my last uh, wound care or something and, and um, you know, like a light wound care. And, and then in the morning uh, we do the wound care uh, in another Swanier's room. And I start bringing my kits down to the truck and I'm yeah. like, Oh, I just have to bring my table down and my suitcase in the morning. So, Oh, I'll just stretch out on my table before I, Take a shower. And, and I fall asleep. <laughs> and I had one of these Casio watches that had like six time zones. It had my all of a sudden my alarm would go boop, 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 boop. And it'd go off at like five something in the morning. I'm like, 
oh my God, what is that? And I'd wake up and I'd start crying. I'm like, oh, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd like quick, just like lie in the bed just to say I did it. And the thought would come across my mind like, oh, you don't even have to take a shower. You're ready for the next day. And I'm like, that's disgusting. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) and then the day would start um, with the staff having to go down and have our staff breakfast and then um, start the busyness of the day. Mm -hmm. So we'd have to, we'd have a list, you know, on like little pieces of paper. We'd have like little lists that we hand wrote. Now everything is, you know, on tablets and computer, but we'd uh, start with the staff breakfast. Then we'd wake the riders up, get them up, get their breakfast going. And then we'd start with the suitcases, getting the riders rounded up, carrying the 70 piece of baggage down to the truck, get that all loaded up and start hauling the riders out of their rooms, getting them into the cars, get them to the start and um get them there get them their race food in their bag in their um back pockets yeah and then the one years would leave to go to the start and the one years that went to the hotel would have left from the hotel yeah. uh, and go to the next hotel and that the day would start that way <laughs> yeah. and and then you've got to go to the feed yeah we'd go to then- feed and then you got a pass. You, you, I read that you, you used to get the pass for the finish as well. So you were the first to meet them. Right. So the two swaniers that went to the race would go to the first feed on an alternate route. And back then we, we didn't have GPS or anything. So we had Michelin maps, you know, that yeah. we unfolded and we had highlighter pens and we would highlight, you know, <laughs> where the feed zone was. And we, with another highlighter pink, I would highlight the alternate route you know, that we would take to go to the first set, first feed yeah. zone, the second feed zone and the finish. Sometimes we'd have to pass the riders on the road, <laughs> you know, and uh, beep, 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 all the swan years, um, the 22 teams would pass the riders sometimes in the race. And then we'd get to the finish and uh, wipe them down and um, tell them whether they're going to get in the car or how far the hotel was. <laughs> whether they've got to ride back, yeah. Oh, uh, I mean, it's, there was a lot of pressure reading, you know, we, you forget about reading maps and following, um, <laughs> forgetting like turning a map into what the road looks like. It's, uh, I know it, it was, it was full on. And what about at the end of the Tour of France? Were you more exhausted than the riders? You know, sometimes it didn't hit, you didn't hit you for yeah. a while because your body's kind of humming. Yeah. Yeah. So after a state, a big race, so there's the Grand Tours. And then there's the smaller tours, like, um, you know, there's the three big Grand Tours, and then there's the, the smaller tours. But those big ones, um, sometimes you didn't have a timeout. Um, sometimes you went and, and like, I would go work the, the kermesses afterward. And so your body was still kind of going. Those were like nighttime races. And um, I'd go work some of the kermess series. And then my body would kind of like still be going at night. Um, and then you'd, you kind of crash out or you kind of come off it a little bit more. Uh, Good thing I was young. (laughs) How many days would you be working? How many days would you be on a race a year? Uh, would you do all three grand tours? I, I didn't do all three. I would do two grand tours, but I, 
I'd work like uh, 220 days a year, you know, including, um, I think I'd have like 124 days off or something, 120 days off. We worked a lot yeah. because, you know, we'd show up at the beginning uh, in January for the, um, for uh, training camp. So I'd have to go over right after the first of the year uh, for, to work training camps. And then, and then we'd work till tour Lombardy or stuff like that, Piemonte and Lombardia, and then have to go to the service courses and, you know, get everything put away and reorganize the service course and, and then go to your Belgian digs and, you know, get organized there. And then by the time you got back to wherever you were going, wherever your other house was, you know, it'd be even later in the season. Yeah. So it was a long time. <laughs> Um, after after Lavie Claire, you moved um, to TVM because you wanted to work on the same team as as Phil Anderson. How did how did that work out? I mean, it was uh, still in the days when wives and girlfriends weren't on teams. Uh, I know. Jean Francois didn't. Right, oh, sorry, Jean Francois didn't want me to leave that team, yeah. and I just chose to go be with Phil uh, as if uh, as if I was just on an entourage, you know. Like mm-hmm. another team leader wanted me to go to his team. So I just, I just went with that. Um, and so I, I did have fun on TVM though. That was a fun team to be on. A lot of people spoke English. Most of the riders spoke English and the common language back then was French. So if someone didn't speak English, I could speak my rough French to them, which was, which was very rough. And then, uh, you know, as you know, a lot of riders, back then now everyone does speak english but yes. back then on the finish line if someone was tired um on my team this was the same on lobby claire but they, most of those guys spoke french but on tvm if someone was tired at the finish line they would speak their native language you know which was, <laughs> which was dutch or german or or whatever but some of those dutch uh, dialects were were funny like the uh Eddie Skurd he spoke uh Fries from Friesland Friesland yeah I, I would just listen to him and go okay <laughs> you know <laughs> or Jesper Skibby he would speak uh Danish in his dialect and I'd say okay I would just say something in English just say the team car's over there I wouldn't even know what he was talking about <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it must have been a fun team because you did have some la- uh, larger than life characters, didn't you? Yes, for Skibby and oh man, he was funny. Yeah. And, and then we had a guy. Um, his last name was uh, Von Von Steenwinkel, and uh, we used to call him from the Stone Shop. His last name meant the Stone Shop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had Peter Peters, and um, we had Johann Lammerts and uh, Jacques Hanegraaf. We had yeah, we had some big hitters on that team, and. Um, Flip Flip Van de Branda from Hitachi was on that team. And um, you know, he had won Perry Brussels and he used to uh be the be the you know lieutenant for um Krike Yon mm-hmm. on Hitachi. So there was some amazing guys. So that was a that was an amazing team to be on. And um the domestique that Phil wanted on that team was Patrick Jacobs, and he lived with us in Belgium. Yeah. He wanted to live with us for close to a week so that he could understand like how Phil ticked. And that was, that was a fascinating experience to be around. 
Yeah, that's a that's a, a domestic doing his job really well, isn't it? To understand. Yeah. Where where did you live in Belgium? You lived in in Waregem. Yeah. Um, in a village in Flanders, and that was uh, that's a cool place, you know, to be you know, right near all the big cobble climbs in that history to, to be inside of Flanders, in Flanders. And uh, Brunil lived close by. There's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of history in that area. And uh, just to drive, drive a car on those roads, um, just to be inside of that was, was an honor. It, I mean, you've said that, I think you that somebody in a uh, written interview asked you to pick your favorite single day race which you said the Tour of Flanders, it's mine too, because it's an amazing yeah. race. It's, you know, how does anybody come through all that mayhem I, <laughs> to I win know. it? Yes. <laughs> a lot of depth of soul there, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, there is a lot of depth of soul. Um, you've got to, um, well, I mean, single, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of single day racing. I just think uh, it's got a, a start and a finish and a result in the day. And uh, nowadays, uh, yeah, I feel like Grand Tours, it's more like a chess game and you can lose them easily, but you, you have to do something in a single, in a classic. You have to do something to win it. You have to make it. Yeah, and Paris Roubaix is just, just sheer barbarianism. You know, it's like <laughs> there's not as much finesse there. No. And people want to watch it. Um, I think spectator sport, the spectator part of it, people want to watch that you know oh paribay paribay but um it it is very barbaric you know and um <laughs> i hate to use that word uh for cycling it's, but, it's brutal yeah it truly is and um it's it's difficult on the riders on their hands and everything in their body but you know tour flanders that that is a fascinating race and historic too um, all the wars and yeah tanks went through there and and it's used um <clears throat> by farmers you know um it's in the farm country and uh and the people there that live there uh that use those roads are in that rural area um are very beautiful people you know mm. everyday folk that live there are very lovely, you know. They're really very nice warm, people. very warm and friendly. Um, yeah, they're really, and, really warm and friendly. I and agree. understand bike racing, understand cycling as well. Yeah, they really do. And you know, if you go in a bar, uh, I don't know if they still do this, but you know, they bet on the cyclists. You know, yes. the bookmakers. You know, <laughs> I don't know whether it's legal now, but it, they they used the Kermesses used to be. That was all betting, wasn't it? I I used to bet on the cyclists. You know, I used to yeah. go in and. But I couldn't do it myself. I used to, uh, I used to take, you know, we used to take coasters, <laughs> <laughs> and you write your, <clears throat> you write the rider's name down on the coaster, on the paper coasters, you know, at the little cafes. <laughs> and they, did you get inside information from the mafias? <laughs> and I couldn't. Um, you know, I couldn't let anybody know because they knew who I was. <laughs> it was going good. So I used to go to this bistro yeah. in Cortrec, yeah. uh, Bistro de Pre. And um, I'd go in there when Phil was training. And, yeah. um, you know, I'd, I'd take money. Uh, <laughs> God, I used to take money. And I and I used to, uh, you know, 
<laughs> convert it into Belgian francs. And I'd go really quickly, not in a team car, yeah. but you know, in a regular car or on my on the journey. And I'd go to Cortrack to Bistro de Pray. <laughs> and you know, the waiter, Danny, would see me, Danny Bernil, no relation to Johan. And, <laughs> and he'd see me coming and um he'd go to the chef, Eric Dupre, he'd say, Yeah, Shelly's Huda. And I'd I <laughs> and I'd, I'd say, <laughs> and I'd I'd go and I'd say, listen, so and so has bronchitis. He's not gonna go good, you know, at Gamp Table Gamp. And um and Eric Dupre would come, he'd be chopping, you know, in the back, and uh and he'd say, Oh yeah, for what is that, Shell? And I'd say, listen. So and so has bronchitis. He's not going to be a good pick for Wednesday, but so and so is. And they'd say, "Oh yeah, so, yeah, who's going on?" And I'd say, "You know, who's going to go good? You know, it's going to be Bunyo or whatever." And so <laughs> he had me a coaster, and I'd hand the equivalent of like my bets were always like five hundred dollars in Belgian francs. Okay, oh. like the equivalent of five hundred U.S. dollars, yeah. and I would write my three bets down, and then. Danny Bernil and Eric Dupre would do the same thing. So they'd be like, they'd go to the till and Eric would take five. <laughs> That's on what you told them. Yeah. And then they'd be three coasters worth of $500 of bets. And then you know, Danny would start smoking cigarettes and Eric would say, you know, go to the bookmaker. And, the <laughs> and they'd run next door. And, um, Danny would run next door to the bookmaker at the bar next door to Bistro de Prey in Cortrek and place three bets, three crazy, stupid bets yeah. that had nothing to do with the picks up on the board at the bar. Yeah. And the bookmaker would look at Danny like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he'd say, yeah, I And so <laughs> <laughs> then I'd have to get back to the house and and um, act like nothing happened. And then, <laughs> then I'd have to pack my shit and then go to the go to the race where you know my team was training and everything, and think to myself while oh, I'm rubbing my riders, "Fuck! I hope I hope I win win the money." <laughs> I bet you won a lot. Yeah, I, it was like kind of a wash. You know, sometimes somebody would crash or somebody got hooked or somebody bought a fucking race. And <laughs> <laughs> and then one day, one day, I'm in a file cabinet and I'm getting money out, Danish croning, so I could go convert it. And Phil walks into the house. <laughs> And he goes, what are you doing, darling? And I go, oh, hi. I'm just grabbing some cash. He goes, oh, you don't have enough money. And I go, oh, I just need to do some shopping. He goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he needed some new battery or whatever for his Avicen because he's going to do intervals yeah. or something. <laughs> and oh, here, darling takes out his wallet and gives me some money. I go, oh, thanks so much. You know, have a nice training. And I'm like, 
And so I take the money and then I'm back in with the crony, get it out so I can go do my fix. And so <laughs> I didn't I didn't tell Phil and Annie, his girlfriend, about the bookmaker story until like during COVID when we were talking on <laughs> Facebook Messenger. <laughs> Oh God, help me! Oh, yeah. that, so. that that's an absolutely wonderful story. Um, uh, thank you. I think we better end it there before we know any more secrets of the of um of the of the cycling world. But uh, yeah, I bet those I bet that chef and the the waiter loved you, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> you have to keep changing bookmakers because you were too successful. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> No one knew it was me All to be right. to pray. <laughs> he just thought you were lucky. <laughs> Till now. <laughs> Till now. Well, um, Shelly versus. Thank you so much for that. It's been. It's thank you, Chris. Great. It was been a joy to talk on Cycling Legends. I just love what you do. <laughs>